This episode is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, and I've got some great news for you. 5.11 usually very generously offers the listeners of this podcast 15% off any of their purchases using the code SHIELD15. Well, going into Black Friday from November 26th to December 1st, they're offering you guys 25% off and a free patch if you use the code SHIELD25. So that's S-H-I-E-L-D-25 at 511tactical.com. You will get 25% off and a patch. Now, while you are looking through there, I urge you to look at some of the products that we've talked about in the last few episodes. From the lightweight Norris sneaker, a great alternative to the tactical boot, to the AMP backpack, um, the uniform selection that I've talked about. I'm going to throw one new piece of equipment in there as well. The Response XR2 flashlight, um, extremely light, or torch as I would say in England, um, very, very light and compact. The brightest bloody light I've ever seen in my life. Not only was is it great for illuminating things, it actually would have a great self-defense element to it as well because it's literally blinding. So not rated specifically to go into structure fires, but every other element of our job is a great light to have on your person. So as I mentioned before, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, 25 at 511tactical.com from November 26th to December 1st, and the rest of the year, Shield 15 will still get you your 15% off. Welcome to episode 255 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm very excited to welcome back to the show Dr. BJ Miller. Now, Dr. Miller was my guest on episode 54. He is a palliative care physician in the San Francisco area. And in that discussion, we talked about his journey into medicine, the incident that left him with multiple injuries, his physical and mental journey back from there. So I highly recommend you listen to that. In this episode, we discuss the new book he just released, A Beginner's Guide to the End. So we're really expanding on the topic of dying. Many of you listening, we respond to chronically ill patients, acutely ill patients. Um, so a diverse spectrum. And then obviously we're human. So we have those people in our own family as well. So it's a guide to preparing for imminent death, thing that we're all going to experience eventually. Um, if you suddenly get a terminal diagnosis, considering palliative care and hospice, um, the logistics of it, and then even topics like assisted suicide, euthanasia, the word now is aid in dying, but that entire topic, like what if you want to take control of that area yourself as well? So a very, very interesting conversation. Before we get to it, as I always say, take a moment, please, to go to your podcast app and leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are to people. Obviously, this topic, none of us are going to escape it. So I really want to get this to everyone that needs to hear it. And then share these episodes, whether on social media, word of mouth, email, whatever it is, any outlet that you have to get these incredible guest stories to the people that need to hear them. I need your help. So with that being said, I introduce to you again, Dr. B.J. Miller. Enjoy. DJ, I just want to say thank you again. It's been almost two years since we last spoke. Uh, for people listening, that was episode 54. Um, so the first question is, as I asked you that day as well, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
Well, today I'm happily at home. I'm in Mill Valley, California. I've been on the road a lot for this book. So I'm, I've got a nice little few days more at home before heading out to Oklahoma next week. Excellent. So we're going to talk about the book in, in, in detail in a moment. But two, the two years that, that it's been since we spoke last, have there any have been any kind of like paradigm shifts in you know, your hospice side or any areas outside of the book that have kind of struck you? Well, do you mean, James, in the, around the subject matter in general or my personal or professional life? Either or. Well, let's see. Um, <clears throat> I think in, the, in terms of the sort of general public awakening around the reality of mortality and the n- normalcy of, of, of illness, uh, I do feel like there's just a, cre- cre- you know, a slowly building awareness and the more people I meet, I, I meet more and more folks who who are aware of palliative care, whereas, you know, maybe two years ago, I said maybe half the people I ever met knew what palliative care was. So there's a, so, so I guess the answer there is there's a general awareness growing. And I think in the private sector, you see more startups around advanced care planning, for example, um, the this thing called the longevity economy which is an enormous chunk of change around the realities of aging in our big historically aging demographic. So, so the market and the private sector are slowly are, are starting to respond with new gizmos, new wearable apps, new things that might help us live better in the face of illness. So, um, yeah, I think that's the news from the front and the macro. For me personally, uh, my personal life is still dominated by work, but, you know, by choice. Um, everything's coming along all right. I've got a little cold right now, but <clears throat> generally doing well and bouncing around the world happily. And then professionally, um, you know, the big news for me is getting the book out after three and a half years, getting that out. It was released in July and, and now I get to turn my attention to the next thing, which, you know, maybe we can talk about a little bit today. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk, let's talk about that first and then we'll get to the book. Sure. Well, so one, so the next uh, you know, the next thing that the, there's so much work to be done, as, as you know, there's just, you know, you can come at this subject from so many angles. But I've, I have found myself for the last couple of years particularly interested in, in, in how we do or don't use existing knowledge. Like, you know, in this day and age with so much access to information, um, you'd think we'd be smarter. And you'd think it would be easier for us to understand the realities of our uh, of our diagnosis or what it means to be caregiving, et cetera. And yet we, we don't. And in some ways, I think we're more confused than ever. I think most people, the second they get a diagnosis, go online and Google it, where you're met with information that's not necessarily curated. It's only filtered for popularity or commercial importance. <clears throat> Those aren't necessarily agendas that help you feel confident in the information you're getting. And so people are being awash in, in data that's not very helpful. So, uh, you know, in a way, I want to kind of get in the business of how do we get to know the truth of our situation? Um, there's so much existing knowledge around this subject. People have been de- dying for, for, um, for a long time. So, so what I'm thinking about doing is um, starting an online archive, uh, building out a huge repository of clinical data, social science, popular culture, the arts, policy, religion, pulling from as many disciplines as I can imagine 
that have uh, where humans have described the the realities of illness and and trauma and death, and make all that accessible, curate that, uh, and make it accessible to the public. Um, so I'm building basically building a big library, and on, and on top of that library, James, the idea would be to begin as a way into all this information to begin collecting narratives and stories from patients, caregivers, family members, and making these stories available online. So people have a way, have a way into the subject matter. And then, and and also we can get to the benefits of, of bearing witness by just sharing our stories online in a safe way. So, uh, so I got to begin building this structure. I need to raise a lot of money because, of course, this can't have any commercial interest. It, it can't have any commercial agenda to it. The, this thing needs to be as, tr- as as bulletproof and trustworthy as the public library. So we're just beginning to put this down, uh, create this puppy and raise money to build it out. Well, it sounds incredible. And it, it's interesting because that's kind of the reason why I started this as well is, I mean, we're about the same age. We were raised being told so many things and there wasn't any malice behind most of it but it was just it was wrong with the way you eat wrong with the way you deal with disease wrong with the way you exercise um and there's there's just so much kind of deconstruction needs to go on for our generation probably the generation ahead of us and the generation behind on on everything you know and i think that yeah absolutely right especially with the chronic disease side it's it's infuriating to see how few people understand even just the fact that you can reverse disease with food alone Mm -hmm. yep you got it yep and all this information you can find it but it's buried beneath junk and outright lies and snake oil and you know it's out there but it's (laughs) you have to comb it's a full-time job combing through the muck to get to the pearls yeah it should be easier than that Absolutely. Well, that is kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you on this one, because I just listened to our previous conversation this morning to make sure I didn't overlap too much. Um, but one of the heartbreaking things to me when I hear someone has, you know, passed away from cancer, they've had autoimmune disease, you know, whatever it is, is could that have been prevented? And, and you know, when you when you look at what we're told, there's, there's a, a, in my opinion, a great chance that it that it is. Now, as a palliative care physician, um, is that an observation that you've seen, obviously being a you know a medical doctor as well? You know the, the two layers of that. Um, the 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 fact that a lot of these chronic diseases were preventable. Mm. You know, by the time it's interesting you say that. I mean, by the time folks generally get to me or to most palliative care folks, <clears throat> it's you know what it, the, it's still we still get pulled in very late in the game. You know, one of the pushes of my field is trying to get involved sooner where there's still a chance to, to do, as you're saying, James, and still affect the outcome. Um, but the, the, the norm, the normal referral to palliative care, because it's so entwined with end of life care, comes so late in the game that they're, they're generally beyond uh, all sorts of beyond the, the moment where they could could re- re- reverse things. That's not altogether true. And I'm probably, even as I say that, James, I'm probably underestimating what can be done. I'm so involved generally in helping people sort of let go of the idea that they're going to be able to control their health. Um, and sometimes that message can can sound in conflict with helping people find all the agency that they still do have 
to feel better, to live longer, etc. So you're pointing to something where my field has to, my field has to really, we have to, we have to get smarter and be more agile with folks and be able and be, be care, be able to push back on disease as much as help people, um, you know, uh, submit to it. So, so to answer your question, James, no, we don't do a very good job of this. And, and, and you know, just like healthcare doesn't do a good job of this. We don't, we, in medicine, we don't talk about nutrition and lifestyle very much. We say, oh, go, you know, work on your diet and go exercise. And that's about the extent of it. So no, there's a lot for me to learn and a lot for this field to learn. Yeah. And that falls on, on the shoulders of the whole, the whole chain, including us. I mean, I, I, in, in the back of the rescue many times would give nutritional advice. I mean, there's nothing else I can do. I'm just sitting there taking them to the hospital anyway. But, but yeah, I mean, I think just the entire medical community, we as practitioners now owe it to the, the patients and, you know, society in general to start pushing against that, you know, the, the, the constant prescription writing for chronic disease and start educating people on, these preventative actions that can not only mitigate but actually reverse so many of these diseases and pre- prevent further ones from coming. A- a- amen. Uh, you got it. And this is where medicine has to see itself as larger than just um, prescription drugs and interventions based. Um, there's so much good work to be done. A lot of that is left to the sort of social system of the private sector. Um, and we're just missing out on so many opportunities. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you and we got miles to go. All right. Well, let's transition then to the book. So when we spoke, you had the, uh, title as how to die a field guide. So first question, why did that change to the beginner's guide to the end? Well, we, we were the how to die. The original title always made us a little bit uncomfortable because it sounded a little bit too, it sounded a little arrogant. Like, you know, hey, we know how to die. You you know, like, come get our special knowledge. Um, when so much of the answer to all this is like, you know, on some level, it's a little bit like we were just saying, James, about nutrition and disease prevention. Like, the body has all sorts of innate capacities. And very often what we do is just need to do is just get out of the way and offer each other some reassurance and support. So we also, so the book also needed to, we needed to find a title that was a little bit more humble um and said hey you know we don't know there's all sorts of things we don't know there's all sorts of things you already know and we don't need to we don't mean to commandeer your own your own wisdom so how did i just struck us as too too arrogant and, and overreaching um whereas a beginner's guide to the end for one thing it's a beginner's guide it's like you know hey it leaves room for other guides this is one way to look at the subject um, and for two, it, it feels good to have the word beginners in there because, of course, we're all beginners on this subject. No matter even if you're if, even if you've worked in hospice for years, there's all sorts of things that you don't get to know about death. So it felt it felt um, it felt like a more accurate and more um, uh, open and humble title. And also just a sort of fun wordplay, putting beginning and end in the same sentence. So that's how we landed on it. We're pretty happy with it. Brilliant. Yeah, I think I think it's a good choice. I think it makes more sense. There's a, a Dr. Gregor, who's a plant based uh, doctor who has one how not to die. So it's kind of funny, like <laughs> the other end yeah. of the spectrum. Um, yeah. All right. So well, what I was struck by this, I mean, this really is a guide. So I've got the audio book and, you know, each each chapter is obviously about preparation. And then, you know, as you get closer to dying, how you you uh, 
address that mentally and physically and organizationally. Um, so I kind of, without breaking down chapter to chapter, I'd love to kind of just start at the beginning. So for, for most people, um, who at this point are not close to the end, but, you know, are either getting older or are just, uh, you know, looking ahead, what is some of the advice that you give in the book to, kind of getting your affairs in order so god forbid you did get hit by a train or you know something happened that you were at least making it easier on the people you know that you love yeah well so there's we we break it down in sort of like uh two ways sort of the like clean out your attic like get rid of you know, like literally you know like keep an eye on your stuff one of the big things that happens is someone dies They've accumulated so much just material, just stuff. And then families are left spending their grief, you know, months trying to sell the stuff or feel bad for unloading it, wonder if they should keep it. It just become it can become this very unnecessary time and energy sink. So one way, one, one piece of this puzzle is to just kind of, you know, tidy up your, your, your stuff, get rid of things that you don't need or want, you know, um, I think we assume that our heirs are going to want our old couch or whatever else. And most of the time, kids don't actually want that stuff. And it ends up feeling like a yoke. Um, so, so one answer on the simple side is really just, hey, keep an eye out. Get rid of get rid of junk. Live a little more clean. Uh, but then, and then there's the clean out your attic, but your emotional attic. You know, hey, you know, you know that relationship with your cousin Marty, you know, and you know you guys should talk, but you never get around to it, and it really kind of bothers you, but you endlessly defer it. Or, you know, I, I really owe an apology to so-and-so, or, and I never tell my, my mom I love her, et cetera, that kind of thing. Like, just kind of catch up with the, on the psychological and emotional plane of your life. You know, tend to your relationships, and this all this sort of pesky, uh, the, all the unfinished business we leave between people we other, ostensibly love. Because if, like you're saying, if you get wiped out today, if a bus takes you, you know, then you don't, that endless deferment comes to roost and you will have left a lot of unfinished business. Um, so that's another piece of this puzzle is, you know, you're tending to your relationships now. Um, and then also like all, old secrets, a lot of old secrets come out in the wash. People find old love letters. I can't tell you how many stories we heard from people who, you know, the uh, a spouse learn on the death of their of their loved one that the person that had been having affairs or whatever it can be it just makes grief so much more difficult and um so you know there's it's tending to secrets too because they'll probably come out so so those are some themes and then there's also then a whole other layer we can talk about if it's useful but you know a whole other layer of sort of quote unquote putting your affairs in order doing your will putting things into a trust your durable power of attorney for healthcare and finances, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I'd love to talk about that because, I mean, you know, we we respond to, you know, people, many of whom don't make it. You know, they, they pass away whether they were in hospice or whether it was a traumatic event and they were only 18. Um, so that's something, again, that I think we all need to be aware of. But I'm 45 years old. I'm living in a different country and... I still don't have that stuff in place. So I was driving along listening going, oh, shit, <laughs> I should probably do that because, I mean, I, you know, who knows if I'll even finish this journey. So what are some of the the big things for, again, not not for the terminally ill, not for the close to death, but just, just every person that should have, you know, in order at this point? Yeah, well, we, we, 
we recommend in the book starting what we just call a when I die file, just whether it's a shoebox or a, uh, a folder online or an actual folder. You know, over time, you want to populate it with all sorts of things. The, the, the bare bones, the, 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 the nitty gritties really are an advanced directive. So in an advanced directive, as you know, James, that's where you most important piece of it is where you name your healthcare proxy, naming the person who would speak for you on your behalf, who would advocate for you if you can't speak for yourself. And so if you say you get a head trauma and you're in an ICU and on a vent and can't talk, well, then they'll call on your healthcare proxy to help make decisions. And that's a really big responsibility and it's a really important one. So advanced directive is really critical to name that person. And that person should be someone you trust and who knows you well. That doesn't necessarily mean it's your closest person in your life. It may not be your spouse. Sometimes the spouse it would be just too bereft to make any good decisions at all. Um, so naming someone who you trust to know you well and they can speak on your behalf, that's huge. And then also in an advanced directive, you can address things like, would you want uh, you know, life support? Would you want artificial nutrition? Um, would you rather sort of a comfort care approach? So these are the kinds of things you get to name on your advanced directive. And by the way, we should all do our advanced directive starting at age 18. It sounds crazy. But nowadays, thanks to HIPAA, technically, once you turn 18, you're an adult. And, and so a lot of kids will go off to college as technically adults. And if they get into trouble and the parents get a call in the middle of the night and the kid's in the hospital – by law, unless the kid is named the parents as his healthcare proxies, the parents don't have access to the to the to the information. Te legally, technically, the the doctors can't talk to the parents about their kid's illness um, if they're at, if they're over eighteen. Now, a lot of people fudge it, but that's that's the letter of the law. So you want to have an advanced directive really <laughs> very early in life. Um, okay, so that's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, then there's things like, you know, if you have any any assets whatsoever, a house, car, things like that, you don't have to be filthy rich, but it really makes sense to talk to an estate planner and getting your stuff into a trust. If you have your stuff in a trust, then your heirs get to avoid probate. Probate is an expensive, time-sucking hell that happens, plays out through the courts after one dies, and it can all be avoided by putting your, your stuff in a trust. And usually for uh, a grand or two, you can find an estate planner who can do that for you. Uh, so th those are some key documents. Other, other ones that are worth mentioning are this one gets as, you're, as you really are dealing with illness. And this gets to beyond your question. So when you have you know, advanced chronic illness or, or later in life, you, it would make a lot of sense for you to have what's called a pulsed form. And some states are called MOLST or other acronyms, but a POLST is a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. So the thing about an advanced directive, you may state your wishes and have it all notarized, et cetera, but technically that's not a medical, that's not a legally binding medical document. When you're in the world of healthcare, as you know, doctors rule and care only gets meted out based on a doctor's order. So you can show up in an ER with an advanced directive and hopefully the doctors there will take into account and honor those wishes. But they don't have to. And in the heat of the moment, sometimes advanced directives get ignored. Whereas with a POLST, it's a two-page form, a down-and-dirty form. 
Uh, that is signed by your doctor. That's, so that's the PO, the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It's an actual medical order, and it goes with you. So now most hospitals, most states, if you show up in a hospital uh, and you have a pulsed form, then the doctor is legally bound to follow your wishes. And again, those are important. That's a particularly important document. If you are, you know, if it wouldn't be surprising if you uh, were to be found out in your house because you're living with advanced heart failure or cancer or something like that. So I'll, I'll. Uh, does that, am I, does that make sense, James? Are we tracking? Yeah, no, we're definitely tracking. Um, so the DNR would that fall under the pulse umbrella then? Yes. So you could. So the DNR, the Do Not Resuscitate. Some some institutions are now adopting more for the positive spin, calling it Allow Natural Death. So you might see A N D, Allow Natural Death. But either way, the DNR, as you know, the DNR status is basically you're getting out of the way of death, and then all the attention moves from trying to trying to save your life to trying to support you and help make sure you're comfortable. So DNR, a lot of us would would check the DNR box in, in medicine. We we know too much about healthcare. And so, yes, an advanced directive is where you can state your DNR wishes. Again, it's not legally binding, but in a pulsed form, it is. So you've, you can state your DNR and have the doctor sign it, and that should be bulletproof. Brilliant. Yeah, because I know that's one thing I think that terrifies most medics is, you know, we're told there's this, this yellow piece of paper and it'll probably be on the fridge. And, but, you know, I mean, who knows if that's a doctor's signature, you know, and, and I've been on very shady, um, uh, codes where the son who was a doctor waited hours and hours and hours before calling i don't know if that was the person who was suffering or but you know the two siblings are conflicting in their story and to be in the middle of that you know most people would have just air to resuscitation but then you know that's going against the wishes so it's it's one of those things that i i it's so hard to clarify as a medic like you know what exactly does this look like you know how can we trust this implicitly or maybe maybe the electrical age Electronic age eventually will, will help that, but I know it's definitely a gray area in the, the pre-hospital environment. It sure is. I, I mean, I so feel for you guys, James. In the heat of that moment, you've got probably ha half the family yelling at you to do something, other half the family begging you not to, and it is just, I, I, I don't even tell you, it's, it is so hard. One of the things that sounded interesting around this subject is the presumption has always been that everyone would want to have their themselves brought back from death. You know, so always err towards resuscitation. And that's generally probably, you know, if you have to err in one direction, that does make some sense. Um, but, you know, and so it used to be that it was also sort of a legal, like a cover your ass kind of thing that a lot of ER docs, medics, others, us in healthcare would say, gosh, well, when it's a gray zone, we should, we should err on resuscitating uh, and life support and all that stuff, um, in part because we don't want to get sued by a family for not trying um, now I'm wondering when we're going to start seeing lawsuits from people who are resuscitated against their wishes and the cover your ass kind of approach might actually swing the other direction. I don't know. This is all kind of information as we speak and there, there's no one hard and fast rule which way to err. Um, but boy, this does make it tricky. The pulse form was designed to help uh, uh, undo the ambiguity. But as you say, the pulse form may not be accessible at that moment or it may not be signed, or there may be conflicting information on the form itself. And so it, it's still a bit of a quagmire, and you'd have to exercise a ton of judgment. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that. Now, I want to I talk about something that I really want to talk about the last time we spoke, and at the end, when, when we were done, I was like, ah, damn it, I've totally forgot. Um, and that is um, 
euthanasia, which I know there's a better name for that, and I'm looking for my notes now. Aid in dying. Um, I was thinking, it's funny, right before we recorded, I'm I'm a son of a vet, a veterinarian, and you know we helped you know animals transition out of their suffering um, on a daily basis. And yet then when you come to the, the human world, there's so much stigma. You know, I know Dr. Gavorian was, um, you know, was in prison for it. And, you know, there's definitely abuse. And we'll talk about that in a minute. There's a famous case in England. But um, what is your your view, law, you know, law aside, like as a, as a moral side from, from you with, as a palliative care physician, with that being an option for the terminally ill? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so just to, just for your listeners, so language you may have heard, euthanasia is a word that's been used. Um, physician-assisted suicide was the, was the name for many years. Uh, and now the language is, is aid in dying or medically-assisted dying. Um, and I think seven states in the U.S. have such a law on the books. The first was Oregon in 1997, and there you'll hear it referred to as the Death with Dignity Act. That made its way all the way through the Supreme Court, and the courts kicked it back to the states to decide. So it's a now a states' rights issue, and there's you'll see this is a you know, state by state. I you know it's it's a hotly this is a hotly debated question for, and I bet the next time you and I ever talk, there'll probably be ten states who have it, and twelve, and so on. So it's growing. Anyway, that's a little just historical background. So, um, you know, there's a lot of passion around this uh, around this law because it touches on the social code. It touches on our oath as medical and healthcare practitioners. It touches. It's, there's a moral component. Um, various uh, faiths look at this issue ex- importantly differently. So it is a really contentious issue, and you will find staunch advocates on both sides, um, but I, I rarely do you see much conversation between those two sides. It's pretty polarized. So my field, well, the medical establishment for years had been against it, feeling that it went against the, their oath, that we doctors pledge to preserve and protect life and therefore keep death at bay at all costs. Um, then there's a, you know, a more modern view or a newer view, at least in the Western world that no, 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 death is part of life. Death is not antithetical to life. And there's comes a point where you can't keep death at bay. And our oath of, of, as practitioners, uh, extends also to include helping people to die. And that's something that that's a part of life. So depending on how you kind of interpret your oath, you may feel differently about this. Traditionally, the medical world has kept stayed away from it. Um, now state medical boards are, are making proclamations of neutrality, that they'll neither get in the way of the law nor support the law. And that's kind of where uh, things stand officially. Oddly, in my field of palliative care, which, well, the, first of all, the official title of the field is hospice and palliative medicine, just to get that out there. But my field, on some level, you might guess that my field would be in support of this law vigorously because palliative care is so much about self-determination and self-actualization and not being, um, you're not treating death as an enemy, et cetera. But um, a lot of folks in my field are actually very strongly against it. Uh, feeling that what that we can oh if 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 intractable suffering is what makes people want to hasten their death, 
well, there's so much we can do to help people not suffer, and that's where we should be focusing. And if we start allowing, if we start um, letting death be actually somewhat appealing, death being something that we pursue, uh, that that's going to really be a corrosive phenomenon in the field. Uh, I so that's that's background. Personally, James, I um, I am for the law. I'm glad to have this capacity in California. I have had patients over the years who begged me to help hasten their death, and it was very frustrating to not be able to do so. Um, so I'm glad to have this this law on the books. I'm aware of a lot of people who are very grateful as patients and families. I've been involved in a few cases, and we can talk about that. But I have to say, I'm for it because I under, I know myself. I know how I was trained that I can navigate these very difficult questions. So as a patient, and shut me up here, James. I'm going on and on. But you can imagine a patient might come to a doctor and say, hey, doc, I really, I'm really, i done with all this. I really need your help. Please help me die. And if you just stop there and take them on face value, well, you're going to actually hasten the deaths of a lot of people who didn't really want you to hasten their death. So what you need to do as a doctor, you need to sleuth out, is that depression talking? Are they saying this because they have untreated pain? Or do I need to be more aggressive about their anxiety? Or more commonly, people think they're going to be a burden to their family. And so they're trying to get off the planet to spare their families. And very often that means what, you know, the response shouldn't be a lethal medicine. The response should be getting the family together and having a frank, honest conversation. You know, so oftentimes the request to hasten death is a proxy for other issues. And so I believe in myself and my training to help me sleuth that out. Um, I know, but I know a lot of doctors who are called to be the gatekeeper who don't have that training or that sensitivity. And it makes me nervous that doctors are the gatekeepers on something like this because doctors aren't necessarily the most, uh, they're not the best equipped to, to, to keep that gate. So there are problems with the law. There's more to say about it. But as a compromise thing, as a sort of best of what we got, I'm generally supportive of it. Yeah, well, you, first, you weren't joining on at all. I mean, that was something I wanted to ask you two years ago. So um, I think it's fantastic to discuss this. But I, I totally see, you know, what you're saying. And I like I love the fact that there are all these things in place in the states where it's allowed, where you have to have two separate physicians to sign off, you know, and there has to be a period of time between the two. Because, you know, I mean, I, I in this project now constantly get people reaching out that you know i just found out a young 19 year old firefighter took his life yesterday you know um so you know there are there are people in such dire desperation out there that yet yeah, if it was a knee jerk and they were like yeah here we go <laughs> here's here's a lethal dose then then yeah that's horrendous however then you take the als patient who is slowly just you know suffocating basically at what point do you tell that person you know what let me let me put you, you know, as, make you as comfortable as possible, but let me put it in the decision in your hands as well so you can gather your family around and choose, you know, when you transition over. And I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as those safeguards are in place. That's right. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, a, f a further uh, detail on like your ALS example, one thing to appreciate, I mean, it's so hard. I don't envy legislators, you know, when they take complex subjects and have to put policies in place. Like technically in most states, uh, as, as part of this protection to make sure people aren't coerced into uh, killing themselves, 
Um, technically, you have to be able to physically ingest the medicine yourself. You have to be able to take it, put it in your mouth, swallow it, and digest it. And a lot of people who are living with advanced illness can't do that. Classically, ALS, they are not going to be able, many folks with ALS are not going to be able to pick up the medicine, put it in their mouth, and swallow it. And by the letter of the law, they can, they, they, that would be illegal for anyone to put the medicine in their mouth, technically by the letter of the law. So, you know, these kinds of things, or, you know, sometimes you'll hear stories about someone who's got creeping dementia and they had been really, had always been clear this was, this was their wish. But by the time it comes time for them to do it, or in, be, in the waiting period between two doctor's visits, they may lose the capacity to make decisions for themselves with confidence. Uh, and then technically that person cannot get the medicine. So there are some of these safeguards are clunky and um, filter out folks who don't need to be filtered out. But like you're saying, James, it's a pretty decent attempt to save to safeguard the public and to safeguard our systems from the from an, uh, the answer being overly convenient. Ah, oh, yeah, well, your life kind of is difficult. Let's just get you off the planet. That's not where we want to go. No, there was a, a doctor in England when I was younger, Dr. Harold Shipman, who in theory was one of the, the most deadly serial killers on the planet, but we never really heard much about him. But he killed 171 women and 44 men by oh yeah, opiate overdose, basically, before they oh, finally realized. So just <laughs> there are physicians out there. Obviously, they're complete sociopaths. But yeah, I mean, that's that's what we've got to defend against is obviously the, the physician doing something wrong and all the family members signing off when they shouldn't be. And like you said, the, the patient being in the right frame of mind. That's right. And I think I'd add one more piece to this. Like, and one of the one of the critiques I do understand is like, I understand the passion. Like, hey, this is my body. This is my life. And uh, I, I, I feel that way. I understand that very much. But like, where's the outcry that we don't have better access to palliative care or that we're all not cannot, can't count on better training, whether you're medic or what? I mean, that you can't count on better training around communication and how to support people, et cetera. Where's the outrage that we haven't develop hospice and palliative care services to reach every person who's suffering like you know uh, the the part part of the comp compelling thing here is like we should be pushing our systems to do a better job to obviate the need to hasten your death in the first place that's also true yeah i couldn't agree more even just from from the um pre-hospital arena i mean literally i've had codes where i've barely even put my defibrillation pads back in and my dispatchers are hounding me to get back in service or well, how does that give me the time to actually be with the family and you know help with some closure no I'm, I'm told to just go back on the rig and go run another death so yeah i think there's a lot yeah. of things we can do to improve amen all right well then so speaking of the, the palliative side i had uh, dr bonnie goldstein who is a physician in california who started using cannabis in, in incredibly effective ways, especially with pediatric um, clients that she has or uh, patients, excuse me. Um, and, you know, we talked about the cannabis and cancer. And even though no one is solely studying it with cancer, because it's always alongside um, chemo or radiation therapy. Um, but but it seems to be undeniable that there are so many benefits, especially on the palliative side of the, the cancer treatments. So what is your view on cannabis and maybe if there's any other so-called illicit drugs, as we call it, like to call them, um, the, the value of those in, in the palliative side specifically? Mm. So, yeah, so it's a fascinating time. Um, 
you know, the, the, the resurgence, the whole idea of medical cannabis, you know, it's been around for, well, the, the idea of cannabis as therapeutic has been around for millennia. Um, and then the, and, you know, the history of it becoming an illegal, you know, scheduled one DEA uh, substance uh, in this country is a very interesting history how it was become demonized. There's all sorts of juicy stuff in the history of it. But here we are now where uh, uh, cannabis has really resurged as, a, as a, a serious therapeutic agent. And I can't remember how long ago it was, and I believe there were researchers in Israel, uh, I couldn't have that wrong, but who discovered that we have an, an endogenous cannabinoid receptor system. Uh, and this, for your listeners who, uh, uh, who might not know this kind of stuff, I mean, that, this means that your body is you have you make some sort of your body is wired to receive cannabinoids the fact that we have a receptor system means our body is designed to receive these chemicals um much like the endorphin system for endogenous or inborn opiates analogs so and and that this cannabinoid system is fascinatingly everywhere across his organ systems and it's hugely represented in our central nervous system so discovering a whole new receptor system, uh, that's, a, that's a big, big deal. Um, and I can't remember before that when, when the last sort of trans-organ trans receptor system was discovered. But this is relatively new information, and it's, and it's a big, big deal. And this offers up the idea, uh, all sorts of th therapeutic potentials for this chemical. Again, because we're already wired to receive it. So, um, so now we're kind of catching up. There has, because of the Schedule One nonsense, we haven't even been able to study cannabis officially. You couldn't. That means Schedule One DEA means there's zero therapeutic use, a purely illegal substance. You know, it should be treated in a test tube like smallpox in a research lab and kept kept away from the public forever. That's really crazy talk. So. Anyway, we have all this anecdote of, of cannabis users, um, but we had no real science. That's changing pretty quickly. And the science so far is pretty dang encouraging. So, um, so we find ourselves in palliative care, especially here in the Bay Area, you know, at UCSF, a relatively conservative institution. My colleagues and I prescribe cannabis all the time. Um, we prescribe it very often for neuropathic pain, for nausea related to chemotherapy. Um, for uh, anxiety, for insomnia, um, and one, and, and it's been, you know, generally pretty dang effective for a lot of people. I prescribed it. Uh, the other great thing about this material is this chemical is that it seems to have a pretty low. It's not, you know, it's not harmless. I don't want to make that assumption. But as things go, comparing it to sort of like, you know, the opiates, for example, uh, the side effect profile is de minimis and it is pretty dang hard to hurt yourself acutely to quote unquote overdose on cannabis generally means you feel like really out of it for many hours. You may sleep for many hours, but you're not likely to kill yourself with cannabis. So given its relative safety pro profile, its accessibility uh, it, you know, it makes it very easy for us to sort of say, Hey, to a patient, give it a try. And if it helps you, great. And if it doesn't, then no sweat, we'll try something else. So there's my long winded answer to your, to the question on cannabis. I am a believer 
I feel I mean, it's thrilling to have a whole other sort of mechanism of action to work with for patients on pain, nausea, and other uh, tricky symptoms. That's thrilling. Um, so cannabis. Now, on top of that, it gets even more exciting. You guys may you may have seen Michael Pollan's book that came out a year or so ago, um, How to Change Your Mind. It has a much longer subtitle, but this is Michael Pollan, who, Pollan who's a food and science journalist. And he wrote a whole book here about uh, the science, the creeping science of psychedelics as therapeutic agents. Now, so now this starts getting just incredibly fascinating, James. Do you, do you know about all this stuff? Um, a little bit. I've been exposed to some, so I'm all ears. Okay, well, <clears throat> so it turns out back in the 50s, there were psychiatrists and um, the, the government, and this is not just paranoid, weird stories. I mean, there, there were serious research efforts into the use of uh, of psychedelic chemicals, LSD being chief among them. Uh, and there was serious research going on to see for their, for their, their therapeutic use in the psychiatric population, um, that it might be very helpful, um, for various ailments, uh, including addiction. Um, and the science was pretty darn encouraging uh, in the 50s and the 60s. And then and then these chemicals fell. Then then the counterculture happened and, the, you know, Woodstock and these drugs uh, took on wholly other uh, use profiles and, um, you know, symbolic power in, in the culture. These things moved from science to to the world of popular culture. And, you know, of course, a lot of people had very good experiences, but a lot of people had a lot of very bad experiences. And as part of sort of the establishment's response to the counterculture, these drugs were branded as, you know, LSD is also a scheduled one drug, you know, as, as, as basically as poison. And they were removed from our consciousness as potentially therapeutic agents. So now, fast forward to now, and a lot of that research People have started to revisit that early research. Bill Richardson was one of the guys who was around doing the original research, and he's still around all these years later. He's still doing it. And now he's now like a, a holy man, a wise man. He'd been so hard ahead of the curve and then had his whole research life just uh, derailed for decades. And now it's back. Um, and so right now the, the agent most studied is psilocybin, which is the chemical found in magic mushrooms. Um, and there are now several research studies underway and some completed from serious universities like NYU, Johns Hopkins, UCSF. And the data are stunning, James. So, so most of the studies are on folks with chronic illness or cancer or HIV, and they're being given to people with, with essentially existential distress, deep, deep fears of death, um, you know, crippling fears of mortality in the face of illness. And these are folks, you know, in healthcare, we traditionally don't have much to offer folks with existential distress. We, at best, we can label it depression or anxiety and maybe prescribe some Valium and, and help just basically sedate people through their angst. And that's not, that, you know, that's, that's pretty limited and compromised. But now the data from these early studies suggests that psilocybin in a very controlled environment with a, you know, around a protocol of how much is given, it's usually with uh, one or two psychiatrists or psychologists along for the journey um, in a very controlled environment with um, interviews before and after, et cetera. So it's a very controlled process. 
But with this process, people, it's stunning. So people are coming out of this one-time experience. These are not thrill seekers. I mean, this includes like your grandmother. This is not folks who are just looking for to get their jollies. One experience with psilocybin, people are coming out saying they feel a sense of renewed sense of wonder and awe, no fear of death, a sense of belonging to the cosmos, and just amazing reports from very sober, sane people. And, and these effects last for months after just one experience. And what's more, in the data, in the folks studied to date, and there's probably now three or 400 sub test subjects, zero adverse events, none. <laughs> so as you know, in the world of chemicals and pharmaceuticals, that, that's just unheard of. So we, here we have a naturally occurring substance. One-time dose makes you, brings you like peace in the world with no downside. So, you know, needless to say, this is a very thrilling frontier, and it's hotly researched right now. And in the coming years, we may find that psilocybin makes its way to uh, a prescribable substance. Yeah, and that's that's what I was thinking. So, because I heard that the the kind of breaking that that uh, that wall of reality, basically, and getting people to realize that that they were a part of something bigger, or at least let's say realize may not be the right word to. To, to see that and then have that belief and then obviously you put that into a terminal disease setting well yeah that fear of death now is going to go away which then in theory would probably help with the healing and maybe even extend longevity because they're not anxious and not able to sleep exactly yeah and this is what we find with palliative care in general like when you support people on the emotional and physical planes and logistical planes and their relationships if you just support people we're talking basic skill set of kindness and compassion. We know from palliative care and hospice data that in general, that if you do that for people, you, they actually tend to live longer. And as you're saying, it's probably because you diminish their stress and help them feel like they're part of something. And those are life-giving, that's a life-giving place. And uh, so that's true of palliative care in general. And it's really true down to the sort of chemical makeup of psilocybin. So th this, is, this is thrilling, thrilling stuff life-affirming stuff. And it makes the point of how tempering your fear of death is pretty much synonymous with living a better life. Absolutely. Yeah. And you talked about in the last uh, conversation we had about, you know, the kindness and gratitude pieces for that being the, you know, the, the tenants for then when you do reach the end, not having that regret. And I couldn't agree more. Even now at 45, being fortunate enough to have been a lifeguard and a firefighter and in, and in this project, um, you know, a being hugely grateful for what I have every day, but being able to give back, it's a weird piece. I'm still terrified of dying. Don't get me wrong, but it's a weird piece knowing that if I got nailed by a bus today, that there's no regrets. But if you were selfish and trying to hoard material items and, you know, cheating on your spouse, you know, whatever it is, then my goodness is going to be a, 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 you know, a, a rainfall of regrets when you get to the end. You got it, pal. That's right. And regret is, you know, I don't know, death isn't really the enemy. And most of the folks I ever work with, by the time it's really their time, even if they hated death, by the time it's time to go, very, most people are ready one way or another. And death is at some point welcome from, from many of us. I know it's hard for some of us to imagine, but when you're in finally at that horizon, um, with enough support, it may not, it, you might be surprised to find that it's not such a grisly enemy after all. Um, 
But anyway, I can't remember why I was saying all that, James. I was I had another point, but I forgot it. Well, we were talking about um, the uh, drugs and palliative care. So we talked about the uh, psilocybin and cannabis. I don't know if you had any to add to that. No, I just think it's a sort of a, a we're at a golden age on some level um, where these concepts are growing and finding purchase in wider society. And now we've got the creative wheels flowing of how can we support each other better? How can we find meaning uh, with each other? How, how what other ways can we make life better? And what other ways can we grok the reality of death in our lives? That's so this is kind of a thrilling golden age. Uh, so stay tuned on the chemical front and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, just just as a side note, I had a, a English doctor, Doctor Ben Sessa, who's a psychiatrist, and they're doing MDMA therapy. So the the one part of the ecstasy drug, and the same thing. It's a three three time treatment. I think they were a month or so apart, and it just continues to improve and improve because the MDMA allowed them to to drop those internal walls that these patients had. So when they went through the therapy, they were incredibly honest. They were facing you know, the issues that they they had to face. And, you know, another thing, but again, schedule one illicit drug that's illegal. So they have to wait years to finally get through the red tape to, to be allowed to do it properly. Yep. And, yep. And so there's another great example. So I might think, and ketamine's on this, ketamine's a little bit different in that it is prescribable and it's already being used, but it's a drug that's an old drug that's being, uh, finding new frontiers on both the pain front as well, the sort of psychiatric and psychological fronts. And this front of purpose and feeling like and belonging and feeling part of something larger, you know, it's it's uh, it starts taking on religious significance. And it's no wonder that cultures older than ours have been using material like this for a long time and religious for religious purposes. So this is just fascinating stuff. Ayahuasca is on the list. Other things too. There, it's it's coming. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I'll make sure we don't go over. But I, another area I want to talk about. So, so the book, and we'll go to the book and make sure everyone knows where to get it in a moment. But it's a, it's a great, just an incredible guide from you know the beginning all the way through to the end and then after. But an area that I know is just absolutely heart wrenching is worst case for most people is when it's not an elderly relative or you know even our age, but it, it's a child. And I've I've had many friends who are firefighters who have lost their kids to pediatric cancer, you know, and other other ailments when they were three, four, five. So with all you know your knowledge from the, the book and your careers and from your peers, what are some of the the kind of key elements to dealing with that kind of you know dying process and then grief? Well, a couple of things here, James. So one is just to call out um, that there is, you know, in the as you know, in the medical world, we dev- the world's pretty divided between the pediatric front and the adult front. Of course, there's a great continuum when the world, and we're all on it. But from a sort of systems and skill set point of view, I need to just call out my colleagues who do palliative, uh, so pediatric palliative care in the hospice, and it's its own specialty. So I just want to, I don't want to overstate what I know. Um, but I have tended to families who, with a dying uh, child, and I have spent some time around the subject. And one of the things that's this really striking and fascinating, and maybe none of us would be surprised to hear this, but how, how resilient kids are. And in the world of um, pediatric death or ch- kid, children's deaths, um, so often the, um, the child can be is such a is so malleable so adaptive so plastic 
that my experience, I've seen kids just respond with such grace and agility to their own mortality. It's as though that we're born with some natural resilience and uh, ability on this subject. And then we grow up and we, we, we lose touch or it gets beaten out of us. And we start accumulating stuff. We start accumulating an identity. And we start accumulating an ego. And therefore, it makes death harder and harder to, to realize, to understand, to accept. Whereas a child, in some ways, man, they're just so far ahead of us. I don't mean to, I want to be very careful to not to say, hey, kids got it easy. Kids die, no big deal. Kids got it. Uh, it's, of course, nothing like that. But just as a way into the subject, one thing to realize for a lot of us is that the kids find a way to doing okay. It's one of, in some ways, it's much, much harder for the parents, of course. And so in my experience, that's where I've spent time is with the parents who are trying to cope with the loss of a child. And that is so difficult. You know, it, it, it's so different from, oh, granny died and she was 92 and she had a great life and she knew it was her time, et cetera. No one's saying that about a you know 12-year-old kid. There's no one saying it was his time. And it, it just feels wrong. It feels like a, like a deep insult. Um, but of course... You know, this is where I think we all have to start having a relationship to this subject. What is a long life? Is 100 years long? Is 50 years long? And compared to what? And what's a good life? And what are we guaranteed? Is it truly unjust for a child to die? I'm not sure we were ever promised anything. You know, so th these are they're big, big sort of philosophical questions around it. Um, but so that's kind of a little bit of what I understand about kids who are actually themselves dealing with their mortality. I've, I've had the chance to speak with school kids and I'd go in and talk to like, you know, third graders, fourth graders about death. And it's always so fascinating to see how how they respond, how playfully they respond. Um, it's anyway, there's so much to be said about the mind of a child and how prepared the mind of a child is for something like death. Um, one thing we so cutting here to a slightly different angle on this. And we talk about we have a chapter in the book, which is not so much about a kid who is themselves dying, but kids like how to talk to children about the death of their uh, parents or grandparents or how to talk to a kid about death. And that's a different subject, obviously, and that's one we do cover. But there, I think the big take home is from all the research, there's a beautiful field called child life, child life services. And it's a sort of it's a little bit psychology, a little bit social work. But this is a small but growing field where folks are trained around the developmental mind of a child and how kids deal with uh, loss. And one thing that becomes clear is I think we could do kids generally do kids a disservice by shushing them, by not including them in the funeral, by not speaking honestly about the realities of death. We euphemize it. We say, you know, or we just or, or we remove the kid not wanting to scare or hurt them. Um, that, you know, it's case dependent, culture dependent, but in general, kids are smart and they know when you're, they know when something's up and you're not being clear with them. And so our counsel is spurred by experts is generally to let the kid lead you. So they let the kid ask their questions and follow their lead. And if they're wondering about what happened to granny, answer them and answer them directly without so much charge to it. Because we confuse kids with our euphemisms. And if they say, hey, well, granny's going to a better place, then oftentimes we leave the kid going, well, why didn't she take me? I want to go to a better place. You know, things like this. And then they'll spend a year or two in their grief, confused why grand, uh, grandma left them behind to go to a better place. 
as an example. So honesty generally wins, rules the roost, clear, plain spoken, supportive honesty. Um, So anyway, there's a little rant for you. Beautiful. No, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, so one, one more thing before we, we talk about where people can get the book. Um, you, it was a great segue because you talked about, um, pediatric hospice in a pediatric palliative care. Um, and I didn't ask you guys about this last or you about this last time, but as, uh, you know, the, the field that you guys are in, obviously you're, absorbing a lot of trauma and i know it's not all traumatic as we talked about you know there's a lot of beautiful parts to this whole thing but what as a as a profession whether it's zen hospice or people that you work with now what were some of the the tools that they would use to make sure that they they were offloading that themselves essentially sort of self-care james yes exactly yeah well, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have to have a phrase self-care like uh, you have to point it out that you need to care for yourself um um I think one of the, one of the great lessons that I, that was that really was confirmed for me when I when I got to work at um, at Zen Hospice was that that there was they offered me a little bit more language and a sort of a spiritual uh, tie-in to this concept that you know really if we're doing this well and if we're really aware that one of and thanks to and, and with letting empathy pull us. The boundaries between any two people are actually pretty fuzzy. You know, thanks to empathy, I can feel what you're feeling, James, in a way I can, you know, we can be, we can, we can be in each other in a, in a way we can feel each other's pain as an example of where our boundaries are kind of porous and the truth of caregiving and our language gets in the way here, but it's not like you are the caregiver. You just give, give, give. And the patient is the care receiver and they just take, take, take. That is dramatically uh, oversimplified and off base. And that leads to the sort of depletion of caregiving. And it's all over the place in medicine. Like you show how great a doctor you are by not sleeping, by not uh, leaving the hospital, by not eating, as though you're just a one-way street, a caregiving machine. It just doesn't work very well for very long because the truth is we're all human beings and we all have needs. And we're all, you know, mortal. And so, and, and, and that's not only, that's just accurate, but it's also good news because that's where there's a great relationship between caregiving and care receiving. And if you're doing it well, if you're doing it right and you're paying attention along the way, it, the giver receives too. There's a real, there's a reciprocity that goes on between patient and caregiver. Um, and if you're doing it well, you, the caregiver, are learning things you're seeing things, you're feeling, uh, you're learning from someone's vulnerability, you're finding the power of your own compassion. I mean, these kinds of things, you need to take something from the experience of giving care. You need to receive too. So, so that's a long-winded way of saying this sort of structurally. We have to walk, get beyond the language of, of selfless versus selfish, caregiving or care receiving. It's actually a big loop. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to transition to some closing questions because I want to let you go. Um, firstly, let's talk about your books. So A, not the A Beginner's Guide to the End. Um, tell me about where people can find that and just give an overview of, of the total contents. I don't think I, I gave it the complete um, description that I should have. Yeah, sure. No, so thank, thank you, James. So, so the book is called A Beginner's Guide to the End. Um, you know, it's available 
we love local bookstores. So if you have a local bookstore, um, they may very well be carrying it. I mean, Simon and Schuster is the publisher. And, um, so the, the aspiration for this book is to get it out far and wide. So check with your local bookstore and if they don't have it, they can certainly order it or do the good old fashioned Amazon uh, thing. You can certainly find it there. Um, there's an audiobook version with Shoshana and me reading our parts. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and if your readers and, and if you guys, if, if you're so moved, when, one of the things that's very helpful uh, is the word of mouth, telling your friends about this book, giving it as a gift, um, but also writing a review is very helpful for us to get feedback. And it's also very helpful to push the book up and out. So those are the various ways to, to, to get the book and to sort of become an advocate for it. I think you and I both know, James, a lot of people need a book like this. And many of the folks who actually are in most need are the least likely ones to actually pick up a book to help them. So uh, I don't mean this in such a self-serving way, but uh, we do feel this is a pretty powerful gift to give, whether it's for the patient or the caregiver, the family member, whoever's involved. The book, uh, the book covers the waterfront. Um, let me just sort of say a little bit more about it. The, the table of contents, it's laid out. The first third of the book is really about sort of planning and preparing, and that can be done anytime along the course of a life. The second third of the book is really about what to do when you have an actual diagnosis and the abstract is becoming real. And then the last third of the book is really about the final moments of life and then the after effects, you know, memorials, uh, eulogies, uh, funeral arrangements, grieving, etc. So the book really aims to cover all the fundamentals uh, that go into living and dying from illness or caring for someone who does. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I say this about very few books, but I truly think that this is one that should be on the bookshelf of every house. And, and I mean specifically, even physically on the bookshelf, because I'm a big fan of Audible. I think it's great. I love to, to listen when I drive. But there's a good fit for a, you know, an audio book and there's a good fit for a, you know an actual tangible um, hard copy. And I think this is something that you would constantly go back to and refer, like you were saying, as you were finding yourself in different elements of either your life or a friend or a family member. So I highly recommend people actually buy the book of this particular one. Thank you, James. I appreciate that. And, and it is really meant that we put a fair amount of effort into the design of the book itself. So holding this material should feel in itself palliative. The print is large. There are lots of drawings to make the point. The content is meted out in sort of bite-sized morsels. It's written to be a reference manual, so you can you don't have to read it cover to cover. You can dip into the portion that you need. Um, but a lot of people are finding that they pick it up for one reason or another and just keep reading through, and that's very gratifying for us to hear. Yeah, and I found with the audio, like I said, there was there were elements as I got deeper in the book that weren't applicable to me at this moment in time, but there were also life lessons because things that you were advising people to do once they have a terminal diagnosis or whether they are close to the end of life also really factor into that gratitude piece. Like if you can get to that point mentally today, you're going to be ahead of the game. God forbid you actually get to, to that part. Amen. You're right on there, James. And that's that's kind of the... So much of this work, of course, is in, in a way kind of harm reduction. Like how do we make something that's hard a little less hard? And there's plenty of that material in the book. But as you and I both know, there's, there are other rewards for you. The sooner any of us turns our attention to our finite natures and the world beyond ourselves, uh, the better life we live. So you don't need to wait to be dying. 
to reap those benefits. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, then we talked about your book. So are there any other books that you've come across the last couple of years? I remember you said that you weren't a big reader. Um, you did mention one before, Michael Pollan. Um, are there any others that you love? Um, well, Frank Ostaseski's book, The Five Invitations, I think is, is wonderful. It's not so much a practical guidebook like ours as much as a more of a meditation on getting your mind wrapped around mortality. Um, uh, Katie Butler's book that is, is similar to ours, a little less medical in nature, um, is called The Art of Dying Well. And that came out this past year. I think those are two two great books to point you to, to point your ears to. Um, I love Michael Carney, K E A R N E Y. He's a palliative care physician from Ireland and writes more on the spiritual nature of mortality. Um, Mortally wounded is a particularly fine book. Um, so those are a few for your for your listeners. Brilliant. Okay, and then the same question, but a, a movie and or a documentary. Hmm. Well, Coco was certainly wonderful, the animated film that deals with mortality. Um, that's a really beautiful movie. I don't know if you've seen it, James. Is that um, the one, the, the Spanish one? Is that right? Yep, yep, yep. It's beautiful and deals very squarely with death. Um, uh, I was a teeny little part of a documentary that's on Netflix called Endgame. An Endgame is an hour-long film, a documentary that tracks a couple of different patients, one in the hospital setting and one at Zen Hospice Project, and um, can can get folks thinking and feeling on the subject. Uh, it's, a, it's a documentary. It's not a drama. Um, and that can be found on Netflix. Um, and uh, gosh, there's another film. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. But those are two to point you to, Coco and Endgame. Brilliant. And, I, yeah, and I've seen parts of Coco. My, actually, my little boy was watching it the other day. And then Endgame I watched before our first conversation. I think you did it a, a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, yes. And it came out some uh, – well, I can't remember when it came out. But it was filmed well, many, many years ago, six or six years ago now or so, or five years ago. But, yeah, it's been around for a little while. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did see that one as well. And I remember that it was uh, – because it gave the – kind of overview of the, um, uh, the the ceremony that you guys did when people passed at the Zen Hospice Project and, yeah. and all those, yep. those things. Yeah, fantastic. So I highly recommend that as well. Okay, then the next question. Is there a person that you recommend as a guest to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders mm. and military of the world? Mm. Oh, golly, yeah. Well, let's think about that, James. Um I mean, I have a lot of colleagues in the field of hospice and palliative medicine doing interesting work. Um, you know, um, well, the two authors I mentioned, Katie Butler or Franco Staseski, could be could be particularly wonderful. There's a man named Michael Fratkin, who's a palliative care doctor who who started a company called Resolution Care. Basically, does telehealth. Uh, palliative care and also remote like he'll fly in bush planes out to people who live way out in the sticks he does very interesting work and he's also a poet and an interesting guy um boy red wing kisar is a bay area nurse practitioner in the palliative care world also a poet and does very interesting stuff but um, there's got to be some a really particularly good fit i think for the idea of 
for your for your audience of first responders and and, and military um can I think on this, James, and, and shoot you a note? Absolutely. And just what I remember, is there anyone specifically that you think of in the pediatric palliative care world? Mm. Yeah, there um, there are some real sweethearts, as you can imagine, in that space. There is a man named... Mm, I'm going to have to look him up. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's a pediatric pediatric palliative care and is also a writer an extremely articulate and thoughtful man um he could be a wonderful he might be a wonderful guest for you i'll just have to find his name and shoot it over to you brilliant okay well thank you all right so then the last uh, question before we talk about where people can reach out to you online um i know you mentioned before uh in the last interview about one of the ways you decompress was just just being silent being being in the quiet um, and then you talked about your motorbike that you love to ride. Is there anything new that you found in the last couple of years that adds to that list of things that you do to kind of decompress and get away for a bit? No, it's the same old stuff. It's getting outside, shutting up and getting out in the woods, spending time with my dog in particular, spending time in the wild of Southern Utah really does it for me. That's a wide open space in the sense of sort of geologic and cosmic time where I get to feel nice and small. Uh, those are some favorites and anything on two wheels, motorcycle or mountain bike, I'm particularly happy camper. Um, so no, much more the same. It's uh, just got to actually, actually take my own medicine and, and go out and do it more. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I have one, one more thing to add to it, James. Actually, I'm newly turned on to kayaking and getting on rivers. And I have a new prosthetic arm made by a guy in Chicago named Dave Rotter. Uh, make a beautiful prosthetic arm that allows me to, to paddle. So I'm, I'm starting to get on rivers more. That's my next thing. Okay. Well, actually, well, I was going to ask you this. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the prosthesis. I'm about to get a guy on the show called John Peck, Sergeant John Peck. And he was the quadruple amputee who had the bilateral arm transplant. I don't know if you saw that come across mm, the mm. news. Mm-hmm. Um, was yep. was that anything that, that's come across your radar that you might consider in the future? Uh, you know, sure. If it, It's all about function for me. So there's no, there's no cosmetic appeal per se anymore i'm i've reconciled myself to this this particular my particular asymmetry so if if the surgical techniques advance the point where that's a very functional idea then i'd be all for it i'd I'd love to be bimanual again (laughs) yeah that would be amazing very interesting we'll we'll see what happens with with the technology there all right so that's right so the very last thing then when people want to reach out to you how can they find you online well, we've got our little Twitter thing going. Um, I think it's BJ Miller MD or Dr. BJ Miller. Jeez, I should know this, James. <laughs> um, there's there's the Twitter, whatever that, <laughs> whatever it is, BJ Miller MD or Dr. BJ Miller. Um, and then uh, uh, the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. We have an Instagram, Facebook, all all the social media trappings. And then of course you can reach out to me um, via email at UCSF to um, you know, BJ miller at ucsf.edu fantastic all right well i will uh, i'll make sure i start tagging you in all the other the book sites as well and i just actually tweeted you with the the uh, promo i did for the previous one so people can get ready for this but i just want to thank you again i mean another incredible conversation i could talk to you all day um and i am planning Mm -hmm. on being in northern california sometime early next year so i would love to actually come buy you a coffee and and shake your hand 
That would be great, James. I'd love it. And I love what you're doing, man. Thank you for having me on. And, and um, let me back up one quick second. I should get in the habit of mentioning we had a nascent website, but now that I'm trying to really, I'm now we're now really building out our uh, the library archive idea I mentioned earlier, and that website is the Center for Dying and Living, and that's a great place to that that should be become the the main portal to reach me. So you can go online and go to the Center for Dying and Living dot org, and that's another good way to get to me. Beautiful. Well, I have all those links on the uh, the webpage for this episode at jamesgearing.com. So if anyone needs any of those, they they will be there as well. All right. Well, well, I will let you go. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to talking again soon. Me too, James. Thank you. And thank you very much for all that you do and all that your listeners do. You guys do beautiful work and I'm proud to share the mission. So thanks so much, pal. 